podcast where we watch every feature film with Judy Greer in the cast. I'm Reg Lynn. And I'm Patrick Rapal. And this is episode 12 where we will be discussing the 2011 movie The Key Man, an indie film directed and written by Peter Himmelstein featuring our own Judy Greer along with Hugo Weaving, Brian Cox, and Jack Davenport. So uh, neither of us had seen this movie before. That's true. Uh, but I will say two, uh, two separate episodes we did mention... Well, the next episode's going to be the key van. I guess it's not going to be as much fun as whatever we just did. We tried to keep our spirits up. I remember sure. at the end of Adaptation, we were sort of like, oh, we're going from this movie we both love to the key man. And I was like, well, Brian Cox is really amazing in Adaptation. True. So, and he's he's one of the one of the one of the main characters in this film. So how 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 bad could it be? Uh, <laughs> turns out uh uh, hi guys uh we came to talk about the key man one of the worst films i've ever seen in my life I, I don't I don't know if I'd go that far. Really? Okay, well, that we, we can talk about that in a bit. Just just in terms of, it, was this a good movie? Was this a bad movie? I liked it better than In Memory of My Father. Mm-hmm. So I will say, I don't think this is the worst mo- movie that we have covered yet for this podcast. Okay, I, I, I definitely like this uh, less than In, in Memory, Memory of, of My, my Father. Okay, okay, um, okay. But uh, we can we can get we're we're going to be talking about we'll be comparing movies later when we utilize. Oh everything. yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, but like, needless to say, it's not a good movie. No, no, I, I agree with you there. It is not. It's as you said, it's very boring. I I watched it the first time and I I really didn't have any anything to 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 sink my to sink my hooks into and and to say oh I really want to talk about this on the podcast I looked at my at, at the at the Google document where I was writing my notes and it was it said seventies Greer and that's about it <laughs> it's it's a bad sign when you have a, a media criticism podcast and you can't figure figure out a single thing to say about the piece of media yeah yeah especially I mean this is a a debut film that premiered at um, Sundance I think uh, you know like like low budget kind of thing and there were aspects of this movie um given its creation given its production that i was excited for where i you know um seeing that it was a period piece set in the 70s uh, that it was uh going to be a movie about cr- about like a, a, a crime being pulled off mm-hmm. Th- those things kind of got me we have excited. not seen a thriller with judy greer correct in it we might still have not seen a thriller <laughs> <laughs> Judy Generally, a thriller provides thrills. Yes. So yeah, yeah. Um, I, I was trying to psych myself up. I enjoy a movie that that makes a choice that that really tries for something. I thought that was going to be the key man, and uh, yeah, like I said, just just ended my first watch with wondering what the hell we were going to talk about. Yes, it is. I the the really defining factor of the key man for me is that it is just so resolutely boring. And we can get into what we mean when we call this movie boring. Mm-hmm. But like it, 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 is, it is very low energy. It is very light on incident. Mm-hmm. Um, it is a plot with minimal twists and turns, if any. Right. Um, the, the characters aren't very well fleshed out. Right. So it you you do just get this sort of sinking listless feeling when you have like four consecutive scenes where you don't understand what was supposed to be enjoyable about anything. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> right. um there there's like one aspect of this movie that does have energy. Though. And what is that aspect? That aspect is that 
it has a sort of relentless addiction, I might even say, uh-huh. to Steven Soderbergh, Ocean's 11, 12, 13 style scene transitions where there's like horizontal and vertical wipes and, yes. and split screens and yes. screens within screens. Mm-hmm. That very specific um, thing that is honestly like you go back and you walk, watch Ocean's 11. It feels like the whole movie is that just because everything, every scene matches from one to the next. Mm-hmm. There's actually not as much of those little like on screen um, graphics as as you might remember um, it's just like a little flourish that Soderbergh does here and there mm-hmm. in a, in a, he'll do a wipe, he'll do a, a split screen sort of a thing. Um, these, these sort of affectations that I think because this is a movie that takes place in the seventies, this is the writer director trying to sort of conjure up the style of the seventies. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and the, the, those scene trans almost every single scene transitions into the next one through one of these like little the shot you're looking at becomes a little window and mm-hmm. then it becomes multiplied by eight in a circle and then on, and then all of the screens sort of circle around the screen yeah. and then it zooms in on a new screen like it is it is so unbelievably relentlessly silly yeah, um, and then it's got that funky kind of music the, the, playing. The funky music, it just starts coming up, and you know that it's like, okay, I guess theme's about to end because the little jazz chord. Well, before before we dig into this movie any further, um, I'll catch everyone up with a uh, plot synopsis. Bobby is a family man and a quote-unquote hell of a golfer, but not earning what he used to in his job as an insurance agent. Vincent, an affluent member of Bobby's golf club, wants to buy an expensive key man policy for his furniture business. The insurance policy would cover the operating costs of the business if the co-owner Peter dies. Bobby is eager to make a sale, so eager that he doesn't put up much resistance when Vincent and his friend Irving want him to forge Peter's signature on the insurance policy. Is there something more sinister at work? <laughs> Who could say? Yeah, I I mean, even even trying to write this plot summary, it was just sort of like it was I I was um sort of struggling with how to encapsulate what happens in this movie after the initial setup. So I am as as other millennials might say, I am bad at adulting. Haha. I don't know much much about uh, insurance policies. I think this is probably the first movie where I had to go on Nerd Wallet and do research <laughs> to figure out what the what the crime was that they were trying to commit. The bureaucratic intricacies of insurance uh, policies for businesses yeah. come into play here. Yeah, like I, like I watched this movie twice. I said to myself. Okay, I think I understand what they're talking about here, but let me make sure because it's specifically um, uh, Hugo Weaving's character, Vincent, wants to buy an insurance policy for his business. It's not like personal or, or home or car insurance. It's like business insurance, which I know nothing about because I'm a government employee. Keyman policy is a specific kind of insurance that a business will buy if there is one individual person who is absolutely essential to the business's operation. So just for instance, I imagine that like Harpo Productions probably has a key man policy for Oprah. Sure. Because Harpo's nothing without Oprah. Sure. So this policy says that if that essential person dies, 
or in some cases is incapacitated and is completely unable to work any longer, the insurance company pays the agreed upon sum of money to the business so they have the costs to operate and you know pay people's severance and kind of wind down the business potentially or to stay afloat until they figure out what the heck to do right um so that is the policy that is at the center of this vincent owns a furniture business with um, with this guy Peter, um, he and uh, the our protagonist Bobby uh, are both members of the same golf club. Um, you know, uh, Vincent initially buys like a, another insurance policy from him, but to, but tell you know, th- there's a there's a good amount of time in this movie that's dedicated to uh, to to Vincent trying to convince Bobby to to forge Peter's signature on the insurance policy and saying like, well, Peter doesn't really want the insurance policy, but I want it. Uh, So can you just like, you know, forge his signature? And also he needs to, um, Peter would need to get a physical from the doctor to prove that he's healthy and he's not just going to like die tomorrow um, because that's insurance companies and how they work because it's kind of fucking evil, but that's besides the point. Um, So he's also asking, well, can you also uh, forge the... uh, the, the physical and, and and say that that Peter's in good health and and that's kind of what it's what it's revolving around it, it made me think my thought was you know we talked about Pottersville in our first episode and and how um Pottersville is inspired by it's a wonderful life and I think you could say the same thing about this being inspired by double indemnity sure sure double indemnity uh, there's in the language of the crime film of the film noir of the you know suspense movie insurance policy means like someone is getting killed for money. Yeah, like yeah, we exactly. have, we, if it's, it is a plot device to manufacture money, making someone's death profitable. Yeah. Basically, yeah. Uh, everyone knows this. This is just sort of a fundamental nature of the genre. Uh-huh. As sure as they know that the quiet guy who wanders into town off the horse into the in the western, right, is, like is has the, some the sort of gun in the west. <laughs> he's yeah. He's probably not an average farmer. He's right. probably not just a quiet farmer. Right. I've seen a western before. Right. Um. But speaking of that sort of scheme so what is vincent and irving's plan now that we have seen the complete movie yeah from start to finish what do vincent and irving think they are doing in this film i mean because this movie is so fucking stupid and it's like it's so obvious that you expect there to be a twist and there isn't what is Irving and Vince? What do they think they're going to do? I mean, so we learn that we learn that Irving is a gangster and that he's he's killed people and he's a cold blooded killer. And, um, and we are told that we learn the opposite. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that, that, that's fair. There, there's a there's a character who appears for a split second earlier in the movie who shows up later to warn Bobby uh, that Vincent is a gangster. He's a cold blooded killer. Um, you know, don't trust him. Uh, and you're just like, Oh, okay. I, I guess the, I guess these characters have a pre-established relationship. I certainly don't remember it. Um, 
I, I guess we can trust this guy. Also, I, the audience member, have I guessed this four minutes into the film. Sure. <laughs> like, yeah. this is not a seed that is giving me any information. Yeah, so, you, I mean, you, you absolutely know that the two of them are up to something because they, they're kind of looking at Bobby in the locker room at the beginning of the movie and, and kind of saying, oh, that's him. We have to, you know, that's the guy. We have to talk to him. And it's like, okay, you, you know that these two are plotting something. Right. My, my assumption is that Vincent has hired Irving to kill Charles, right. the key man, right. so that they can collect on the insurance money. Right. So here's what happens. Uh-huh. They get an insurance policy. Right. Um, it is faked. Yeah, yeah. P- Peter, uh, sorry, Immedi- Bobby, Bobby commits fraud for them to get this insurance policy. If you get an insurance policy on someone and there are now two people who know that it's fake who are not profiting from the murder mm-hmm. and immediately that person gets murdered... What does what does the insurance investigators who go, hey, is this legitimate claim? What do the police detect, the homicide detectives? They go, huh, did, would anyone want him dead? Like, who who's the number one suspect immediately within five minutes of the police finding the the body? Well, probably Vincent. It's Vincent. Yeah. So he has he has engineered an elaborate plan where he spends a lot of money getting Bobby's trust and buying these insurance plans and stuff right. and like paying him off. Right. To become the number one suspect in a murder. <laughs> That's true. I, I guess that that he wouldn't have been the one actually committing the murder because because that would be uh, Irving. It, it's the, it's and, only the guy that he has seen hanging around with everyone who they have approached multiple people about this in the past together as a as a duo. Well, that, that's right because because it is established that they tried to get. Bobby's coworker in on this plan, and they mm-hmm. tried to get him to to create to to sell them the the fraudulent and they uh, hang out at the insurance. golf the and, golf yeah, they club hang out together. At the golf club together. <laughs> so, I I mean I yeah yeah. Apparently, this it's does... public knowledge that you're friends with a gangster and you got an insurance policy, and there are two separate people: the doctor who gets paid off to fake the uh, exam, yeah. and the insurance agent who gets paid off to fake the policy. Right. You get two separate people who are not profiting from that murder, who are now witnesses. I guess the idea is that they've already profited, or that Irving would be able to uh, to intimidate them into keeping silence. It's a it's his, a bad plan. No, no, no. I I I agree with you. This is this is a lot of speculation on on our part. Um, well, I mean, it's it's just like it's just flat out like you are going to get caught. You are going to go to jail. This right. is the worst way to make money. Um, and the thing about this is from because you just know what kind of movie it is because mm-hmm. it opens on like a on like a bloody tape recorder and you right. just saw the poster and you know it's a crime yeah, thing and, yeah and it has like an evidence tag yeah, on it yeah and there's like yeah. a like because you know what kind of movie it's it is it's a really cool opening image i will give them that you like the tape recorder with yeah. the blood stains yeah, the evidence and, and, tag and it's, and it's, it's playing and you hear the, Hugo uh, Shakespeare play he's doing oh uh, Troilus and Cressida yeah he's doing a monologue from Troilus and Cressida yeah um which is about impotence which i didn't really <laughs> find a connection to that because usually when someone is quoting Shakespeare or something like that in a movie there's like some thematic uh, connection and I was just like uh, okay I mean I'm not a Charles and Cressida expert but okay so so we have the person who has set up a very expensive plan to get caught murdering someone yes we have Bobby who what does he think is going on he Charles really doesn't want the policy he does not ask why no, he, he he doesn't even ask. I mean, and Vin, we even established that 
Vincent is the one who founded the business and then brought Charles on later as a partner. So why isn't Vincent the one who's the key man in this policy? I I mean, just from Bobby's perspective. Vincent tells him a story that's basically like, so I completely falsely manufactured the idea that he is vital to my thing. Yeah. And I want to get uh, an insurance policy uh, insuring that someone else believes that and I want you to fake it for me. Yeah. And Charles doesn't want this. Does it affect him? It does not. But Charles, uh, but Charles, he just, it's, it's a whole lot of, wouldn't you, wouldn't it rather be easier for us to, over the course of three months, bribe you and another person $15,000 rather than have a conversation with Charles? Like Bobby is an insurance agent. Right. The first thing anyone does when someone with a life big life insurance policy dies is go, well, was this murder? Is is whoever's profiting right. from this life insurance? Right. Like that has to be in his mind already. But Bobby right. is head empty this whole movie. And and if he also also if he's an insurance agent, he's a he's a salesman. So he knows how to talk to people and influence people and right. and he knows his product because I mean they, they even say in the beginning of the movie, like, oh man, he was top of his game great insurance agent which everyone i don't know how everyone knows that and then they're like oh but he hasn't sold anything lately i i but have if he's to at the top of his game i have at some to point, i have to can't? add a very important uh-huh. detail to that it uh-huh. is not that someone says that it is that we have two scenes in a row first it is bobby moping like a teenager in his co-worker's office right going he, and his coworker goes, used to be on top. And he goes, not in a while. Like Jack, Davin, <laughs> Jack Davenport's fucking terrible in this movie. He's not great. Um, uh, I don't, I'm not like, I, whatever. I, I'm not going to judge his whole career based on this movie. Uh, but like he, it's a bad script. Um, he's very bad at this movie. Um, the very next scene is um, Vincent and Irving in the locker room having the exact same conversation. So it's like the audience gets delivered the same bit of uh, exposition twice in a row. Everyone knows this about Bobby. This is like, this is your first, and this again, this is like six minutes into the movie. This Uh is like five minutes in the movie. Like this is your indicator. Like this is the screenplay we're working with. Yeah. Oh Um, yeah. (laughs) So we have a doctor. Right. Who is like, has to have his arm twisted in order to go along with this. He really doesn't want the money. Like he, yeah, like he has to beg him to take the money, the yeah, bribe, basically. Yeah, because I mean, I feel like the, I feel like the doctor probably has more riding on it than Bobby, even because he would lose his medical license mm-hmm. in in addition to you know whatever crime he'd be committing. Um, but but yeah, a thousand dollars is enough to pay him off. This is a discussion they have while playing golf. Uh, a lot of things happen at this golf club at, at, on like on the course in the locker room in the in the clubhouse. Let me tell you the two things that really get my blood pumping. Uh-huh. One, um, identical looking white men in identical suits standing around offices talking about insurance oh, minutia. Man. Yeah. Two, uh, those white men playing golf. <laughs> that is what this movie is made out of. It's, this is a real dad caper. <laughs> But like, but like specifically, um, Ned Ryerson, yeah. it's a real, this is like Ned Ryerson's idea of just a fascinating movie. I, I love that. I love, I, I love thinking about Stephen Tobolowsky, just eyes glued to the TV set, just furiously munching yeah, popcorn. Yeah. Full, full blown Michael Jackson at the beginning yeah. of the Thriller music yeah, video, exactly. chomping on that popcorn. And every now and then he just, he just has that little yowl of pleasure that he does at the end of the movie. He, he, uh, he elbows his wife. That's a key man policy. <laughs> She's like, yes, dear, I know. 
what did you think about the the characters in this movie? We have some really we have Brian Cox, we have Hugo Weaving, both really accomplished actors. That that is true. That's a, that's an objective <laughs> fact you could say about them. Uh, not really pertaining to this movie. Well, um, so the the mystery. There's no mystery. You know, instant the the first time you see Irving and Vincent, you see them scheming. Right. The movie is not from Bobby's perspective. It is from their perspective as much as it is from his. Right. The audience is not hidden. Nothing is hidden from the audience at any point in this movie. Right. Um. So, well, <laughs> there is one thing. Uh, okay. Well, we'll get into that when we talk about uh, Hugo sure. Weaving and this character, sure. Vin, the character of Vincent. So. The other thing this movie thinks it is doing is like the portrait of a sociopath. And it thinks Vincent is like this fascinating character. He's not the kind of guy you would associate with crime. He reads poetry. He likes Japanese gardens. Yeah, he's exactly the type of guy you associate with crime. <laughs> it's every fucking like, uh, like it's, yeah, every criminal mastermind has this this aesthetic sense to them. Yeah, in yeah, like yeah, yeah, Every movie, and it's and it is very and not only like the specific way that like uh, is indicated is in the like one piece of poetry that every movie goes to because it's what all the dumbass screenwriters like it's the one thing they remember from high school English which yeah. is the last time they read a poem which right. is in, in, in Xanadu, Xanadu did Kubla Khan a stately, a stately pleasure dome decree. decree which is like the way that comes up is so ham-fisted but it's like yeah. that's the one poem I don't I couldn't look up another <laughs> poem for him to quote I don't know the names of any other poets <laughs> I typed Kubla Khan into Google and that's what it gave me. So that's what I got to put in this screenplay. Um, it, so he, and it's like, uh, there it's, there's a really weird thing about him where he's an actor. He's not a criminal. Um, right. He, he's a furniture store owner and an actor. He's a failed actor turned furniture store right. owner even. Right. So there is this effort to sort of separate him from Irving and and sort of make him this uh, effete uh, kind of intellectual. Right. But then like all throughout Hugo Weaving does weird little things that like totally deflate that. Like there's a part where they're just sort of like crouching over the Japanese rock garden in front of Irving's new house uh-huh. and he's just like waxing poetic about all of the like mon- like all the landscape that yeah. Yeah, he like sees the, the rock garden is like a poem and this looks like the ocean. Um, but then he also just like starts picking up rocks from the rock garden and throwing them back into the rock yeah. garden. <laughs> There's also a scene where he takes Bobby to uh, this like atrium with this beautiful garden mm-hmm. um, and he's talking about um, like what and, and it's, it's very... Uh, I mean, again, I have no idea how authentic this is, but it's kind of communicating to us, the audience, that it is a Japanese-style garden, and he's talking about the feudal lords of Japan and blah, blah, blah. And there's a there's a koi pond, and he squats down by the pond and then makes this, like, goes to, like, <laughs> to the fish. <laughs> like, like, they're going to come to him like they're cats. It's a very weird choice. I don't think fish do that. <laughs> he's talking, he's, he literally has a monologue about like harmony and peace. And then yeah. he just like walks up to a pot and goes, here, fish, 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 fish. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, 
It, it was very distracting from everything else that went on in that scene. But it's not like, oh, you find out that Vincent is faking all of this. He doesn't actually like, no, Vincent is that guy. He's right. just a bad version of that guy. There's no. Right. The reason that he gives to Bobby for wanting this key man policy is because he says that he needs it to take out a loan on his business <laughs> oh, so he can become a part owner of the Red Sox. And. What I'm wondering is, is is he just saying that because he thinks it's going to impress Bobby and, and he's going to seem like a big catch? 100%. Yeah. 100%. But he, it doesn't fit. I mean, I mean, of course, people have layers and we're all, you know, special snowflakes, but it doesn't fit in at all with like no. everything else that he's exuding. Well, the, the movie was shot in North Carolina and I think they, for some reason, they're like, but it takes place in Boston. Sure. It's totally irrelevant to the identity of the film. No one, Whatever. Has, a, no one has, a, has, a, has a New England accent. <laughs> In fact, half of the, in fact, the three of the people, three of the main characters are British, uh, Brian Cox doing a German accent, yeah. and Hugo Weaving doing his Hugo Weaving thing, which is like, it's hard to call American. Mr. Anderson. Yeah, it, he, he is full-blown Mr. Agent Smithing throughout this whole fucking movie, and whatever accent you call that when he's doing the, humans are a virus, yeah. <laughs> and we are the cure. Like, whatever you call that accent, that's what he is doing in this movie so it's like boston not really relevant but it is it it does just sort of hammer home that like bobby is the most just like idiot fucking child uh who, yeah. who's just like he's gonna buy the red socks yeah. which is a little bit like i need the money bobby because i'm buying the brooklyn bridge <laughs> <laughs> yeah i got a man who's gonna get me a stake in the bridge they also uh when they first meet him irving is really antsy to leave because he's getting the keys to his new house and then they take Bobby along with them even though they just met him it's it's a very like get in loser we're going shopping kind of moment but it's not at all that movie it's like oh I just met these guys in the locker room at my golf club I'm gonna hop in the back of their car while they go to the to the to pick up the keys from the real estate agent for this house that this guy's buying who I just who I barely talked to it's so, very so in, strange in nine out of 10 con movies the uh -huh. reason they do that is because they don't actually have money and they're trying to establish to the mark that they do right they're trying to establish like oh, yeah. we don't need your money we have all of this other money we're trying to let you in on it but it's his house but like, it's his actual it's, house. it's actually what's happening there's no con going on yeah here. yeah he's like taking uh the writer director is like taking moves from like actual movies about cons where yeah. there are twists and yeah. he is just taking them at face value yeah and and irving and his wife they're the only two people who are moving into this gigantic house also i mean Irving... well you have to understand uh irving's daughter is in california Ooh, that's rough yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's a scene there's a scene where he's talking about like his bad relationship with his kids and he yeah. goes and my daughter's in california breaks your heart and then and then bobby agrees is like yeah that's rough and it's like yeah. what is like cal is this is this the 1800s are you applying that she's going to a gold rush I, I like mean, it's i mean i i uh, my thought was maybe it was like a slouching towards Bethlehem kind of thing where it's like, oh man, she she just kind of ran away and she's out in California and she's like, but that's the 60s. That's, that's the not 60s. the 70s. That's not, it's not like a teen runaway Im implication right. when we're in 1974. Right. But it's okay because you find out that his children don't actually talk to him because he has killed multiple people and they don't want anything to do with him. <laughs> right. So she's probably fine. But also like he is a criminal and we already knew that from the start. So like we as audience members, 
subscribers assume that. Like, yeah, yeah you probably yeah. don't have a great relationship with your, or if you don't have a great relationship with your kids, it's probably easy to intuit why. The choice to give to have Brian, the choice to have Brian Cox do this accent sometimes. <laughs> he 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 makes a valiant effort. Uh, which I mean, we're we're assuming is German or Austrian. I was I was really trying to figure out what the hell. And he's also he also they do some like uh, interesting hair stuff with him. He has this very like like bushy curly kind of hair. My my thought for that character because you you never hear him talk about the old country or talk about his past life beyond his kids um but it's it seems like a very specific choice to have him be like a european immigrant my thought was that is it supposed to be implying that he was like in the holocaust or he was involved in world war ii somehow i mean he is jewish like he he at some point uses yiddish so and so like jewish is honestly to me i again like so much of this movie is just like looking at what other movies do not understanding it for any reason why they do it and then just doing it yeah like i think he sort of is working backwards from like oh yeah you know like he's this he's a sort of new york ethnic guy because that's like gangsters and new york ethnic guys and so it's like, well, it's Jewish, but like it's Boston in the 70s. So I like guess, we're not going to have I like guess. Brooklyn, you know, Hasidic Brooklyn Jew or something. So we yeah. got to like work backwards into him being like this German or whatever. It Or it could literally like, honestly, when you are taking a paycheck and you are Brian Cox and you're in this movie, they're like, well, no one's going to fucking see this. Yeah. Like you might just be amusing yourself. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Maybe he was just like, I'm going to make a choice. They gave him the wig and he was like, oh, going to do my wig work, baby. Pull out that accent. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like we don't know for sure Yiddish was in the script, but, you yeah. know, but Brian Cox pulls it out. <laughs> yeah. There's just a couple moments where he. I think he has a few lines that sort of suggest something where he's like, well, when you've seen what I've seen, you know, that, that sort of made me think that, oh, were there some scenes that were cut out where you find out like about Irving's difficult past? Um, he's a, he's a strange character because he's a, he's a gangster. He's, he's an assassin. Like, like they specifically make him out to be this cold blooded killer. Mm-hmm. He is. And he the, is like tremendous guilt. So it's not yeah. like, oh, that's just his reputation. He never right. actually did that. Like right. the mo- the, his it. character arc is about him showing like, I can't be that person right. anymore. Implying right. that he was. But also for someone who is a cold blooded killer, he is the most angry, temperamental dude um, like he tries to call his son to wish him happy birthday and his son doesn't want to talk to him and he like throws the phone across the room. He tries to convince Bobby that Vincent is going to screw him over and Bobby doesn't want to believe him so he gets mad and like throws Bobby against the wall. <laughs> no one knows how to convince anyone to do anything in this movie. He he breaks Bobby's hand and then is like later like, Boy, I, I I just don't have the stomach for violence anymore. It's like yeah. he seems like he had the stomach yeah. when you <laughs> threw his head through a glass window. Yeah, he, he has plenty of stomach. I do want to. I I did write down word for word the piece of dialogue, and it made me laugh so much mm-hmm. that I just had to share it. Um, this is the friend who is briefly in a scene previously who pops up just to give exposition about who Irving is, right. just in case the audience didn't get it yet. Right. He goes, Irving's a cold blooded killer. He can kill someone and walk away. He can kill someone and go to a movie. Or eat a sandwich. <laughs> and, and I'm like, I'm like, some fucking screenwriter sat down, wrote, he could kill someone and walk away. He can kill, and then go, 
that's not enough. And then he writes, he could kill someone and go to the movie. And then he's looking at it, he goes, rule of threes, or, <laughs> or eat a sandwich. <laughs> I was fucking dying. He could kill someone and walk to the movie theater where they sell sandwiches. He could kill someone and then go play chess in the park. Uh, he could kill someone and then go uh, shopping for some new walking shoes so he could kill someone and walk away later. He could kill someone and file his taxes so he doesn't go to jail on a technicality. <laughs> just, I, I love that a screenwriter sat down and was like, three, you need, I need to hammer home because there's no evidence of this throughout the movie that he's a cold-blooded killer. I need to make sure this guy says it three times. There's one other part of Vincent, the uh-huh. Hugo Weaving character, that is just so fascinating oh right okay I it's think... just so mind-blowing is this, the, is this the twist th- this is the sole twist in this movie the sole piece of information that is withheld from the audience for a single moment and then revealed is vincent is gay <laughs> what and his lover is charles <laughs> Now it's even more like double indemnity. Bombs exploding. Um, Not relevant to the plot. (laughs) Not really. Does not come up. There is a scene where they take Bobby to this gala event and Charles is with a woman who... It's his wife because she's because she's at this house. Yeah. and, and And then Vincent and Charles get in an argument, which... Okay, looking back at that scene, it does give it a new context. But y- yeah, it, it sort of comes up in this way where where Irving reveals it to Bobby, and he's like, "It's the seventies. He's a homosexual. <laughs> that is the greatest. <laughs> he's fagalo." <laughs> <laughs> Very weird. It's a very weird line. I think he has two lines in a row. One is like, "It's the '70s. He's homosexual," implying like, "Get at, get your head out of your ass. It's not that weird." And then the very next line is, "Have you ever heard such a thing?" Yeah, yeah. It's like, <laughs> like the movie on a on a second to second basis can't decide what we're supposed to feel in 2011 yeah. about an ancillary c- criminal killer character being homosexual. Which is like, maybe if this was 1947, the implication of which would be somewhat interesting yeah but I, like literally only somewhat the queer coded uh killer the effete intellectual uh antagonist right um who is who in fact is masking a deviant sexuality right is just like the horriest fucking trope like dusty like you, the mo- yeah. moths flying out of that trope yeah. but this movie treats it like, this movie has no other cards up its sleeve. Yeah, it's it, re- just it really that. doesn't. And, it, and it, it doesn't do anything interesting with that trope. Like, no. maybe, maybe if you wanted to subvert it or play with it somehow. I think we've talked before on this podcast how we both enjoy a good queer-coded villain. Oh, yes. Vincent is not that villain. There's a there's a scene where he is, has Bobby in the car, and he's threatening him, and then he grabs him and kisses him and then shoves him out of the car. And it's just played as this, like... Oh, how could he do something gro- so <laughs> grotesque and and humiliate our poor upstanding family man like that? Like it, it's it's not it's that the movie does not pull that look off well. There's also a scene where Irving is telling Bobby about how one of the furniture store employees caught Vincent and Charles having sex in the furniture store one night, which is 
I don't know, maybe, maybe they were into the idea of getting caught, but I kind of feel like if you're like a gay dude in the seventies and cheating on your wife, why are you going to like be so reckless? But that's besides the point. I'm going to go ahead and I'm only going to argue because this conversation is more interesting than the movie. Okay. Um, counterpoint. Uh huh. You don't want to go in your small, it's Boston, but it feels like a small town in this movie. Yeah, like a suburb or something. Yeah. Um, you don't want to go to your local hotel with a guy and uh-huh. check in for an hour. Uh-huh. You don't want to go to her house or you don't want to go to the house of the guy that's married. Mm-hmm. You work at a place that's fucking covered in beds. <laughs> Come on. Well, but Vincent's not married. Why it, can't they go to his house? They're, because they're they work in a place that's covered in beds. Mm, I, I, I don't know. Maybe maybe I'm just too practical. Maybe maybe that's my problem. I Let me tell you about that. gay sex in the 70s. <laughs> in, in, in small town Massachusetts. You have to. There has to be an element of public. <laughs> I, I guess. I guess. Uh, but... Yeah, so it's less seedy than if they like owned a restaurant together and were like fucking on the on like the prep counter or something. I, I yeah, I guess I guess there is that sort of illicit thrill of like, oh, then a family's gonna come in here and the duvet cover is gonna be a little rumpled because we <laughs> fucked on it. That sex scene was so weird. It, it they look like they're wrestling. Like 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 there's that joke about like, Mama, are they wrestling? But they look like they're wrestling. I mean and also like I've seen wrestling matches with more homoerotic energy than the sex scene. And and there there's just this moment where um where Vincent grabs Charles hair and then brings him in for a kiss but there's this like tension in Vincent holding his head where it feels like he is like stealing himself yeah. to kiss him and then just sort of like 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 it's on a dare or something it did get me thinking about how Hugo Weaving was the main character in Adventures of Priscilla Queen of the Desert and mm-hmm. I said well he's he's not the most like flamboyant character in that movie he's kind of the sorry the straight man uh to Guy Pierce's uh, a character who's just this like super energized twink and then uh, Terrence Stamps plays a trans woman uh, and and so Hugo Weaving's more of the like protagonist that we're supposed to relate to uh, so I was like well he was he pulled it off in that movie so I was like watching scenes from it and I was like oh right because this is all about like camp and drag and there's no romance in the movie there's no like sex or kissing really I, I think I think one of one of the characters ends up in a relationship but there's no there's no there's no sexuality on screen in that movie. I don't want to put this on Hugh, Hugo Weaving as a talented actor. Sure. I think he could convincingly have gay sex with someone. Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. But- I don't want to put this on his shoulders. <laughs> I'm going to go ahead and say that the guy who is has proven himself to make stupid choices throughout every other aspect of this movie... Um, <laughs> went ahead and directed that sex scene poorly and said, like, "This is so intense because it's wrong." And like yeah. he, he, like he was trying to, like he, he messed it up. Writer, director, intimacy coordinator. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Um, so we talked about Vincent and Irving. They're like two of the three real leads of the movie. Right. The the third, who is the lead lead, played by Jack Davenport, is right. Bobby. He's a fascinating figure in this movie because he is just so dumb. Fascinating is a fascinating choice of words there, but go on. I, it is it is fascinating how Jack Davenport plays him like a child at every mm. single, at like not just like naive, but just like, 
at a certain point they're like, oh, it's a black tie affair. Do you have a tuxedo? And he and he sort of makes a face like, mm, I don't like tuxedos. Mm, I don't want to wear one. Like he like he is like just a twelve year old throughout this whole thing. Yeah, yeah. And then like there's parts where he has to be like cocky, like oh yeah, their energy, the criminal energy, the excitement of being part of this illegal activity is like getting into him and changing who he is. And he's like, I want to get a big house for you. I got these guys on the hook. They're gonna buy the Red Sox because I have through two fucking brain cells and they're on opposite <laughs> sides of my skull and they're not talking to each other um and he he'll have like a few lines of dialogue where he's like he walks up to a realtor who's like so uh the 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 asking price is like seventy five thousand dollars and he's like tell him our offer is seventy five thousand dollars and that's our last offer and he like walks away and it's, and it's just sort of like you don't need to like put that thing at that little tag at the end there right. like you just told me that you would pay the asking price Oh no! no I, I think I think it was I think it was like he he undercuts the asking price by a certain amount, but it's but still... like ju- but he, but within the amount whatever it's the amount that the realtor says you can undercut the asking price by. She says you their asking price is this, so don't come in with an offer less than this. Right, and he just says the off the number that she says. And he's like, and he's like, that's our final offer and walks away. And he has like a few moments like that where he's like, uh, I'm tough. Yeah. And it's, and it's so silly. Yeah. And to an extent, the way these stories work is you need a mark. You need some guy who gets in over his head. Yeah. But like the way he is played as just like a child in a man's suit. Yeah. Yeah. Like he, like he is, like he's Tom Hanks from big. Yeah. Like is, especially, especially when it comes to buying a house. Cause it's like, well, if your offer's the lowest, they're going to sell it. Someone else. Right. That's not actually like, uh, it's like, tell them they're just going to have to deal with it. And it's like, yeah. well, I'm a realtor and I get a percentage of that. So actually I'm going to make sure they don't have to deal with right, it. Right, right. <laughs> very strange. Yeah, very. Uh, like there's so many parts of this movie that are just like the person who wrote this movie does not understand the adult world. <laughs> yeah, it, it definitely felt that way. Um, also, where, you know, he's supposed to be the, the person who you have some connection to or empathy towards or at least a little bit understand why he's doing what he's doing i kind of feel like them buying a bigger house isn't that interesting as as far as stakes go where it's like oh he's you don't really see their former house it's not like they're living in a tiny apartment at the beginning right yeah yeah there's yeah there's no suggestion I, th- I think it's even. I think he even brings it up to his wife. She's yeah. not like, "Oh my God, we need a bigger place." She's like, "Well, we can't afford it." He goes, "I think we can, because you know the guys who are going to buy the Red Sox, that thing that happens all the furniture store salesman who's going to yeah. buy the Red Sox, that thing that happens all the time." Yeah, I got him on my hook like a fish. <laughs> um, and she's sort of like, oh, "Okay, <laughs> <laughs> I believe you." Um. There's even a part where he goes on like a little jag like that. She's like, I have no idea what you're talking about right now. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's he's for a, for a movie that's supposed to be a, a psychological thriller. There's not a lot of interiority to this character. No, there's not a lot of there's not a lot likable about him. No, uh, th- there's not a lot interesting about him he is he is a a white dude who lives in the suburbs with his blonde wife and their the most children. interesting thing is hey, hey hey bro you're english where how'd that happen <laughs> yeah yeah there are a few moments where uh his his natural accent just kind of bubbles to the surface oh, i i think he, he's just doing his voice the whole time oh really as someone who's who watched jack davenport in two seasons of coupling i like 
he might be a little less English, but like he is not doing an American accent in this movie. Um, he is just speaking like with an English accent, and I don't I don't know if they cast him thinking he would do a Boston accent, and then that just didn't work out, or if they're just like, yeah, it's fine. Like Arnold Schwarzenegger is just like a cop in L.A. It's fine. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like it turns out, America has a lot of accents in it. Don't worry about it. He's from Boston, and he's been there the entire time white people have been there, so he has an English accent. That's right. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's right. He's he when Irving's like some of the things I've seen yeah. that he, and that he's just like yeah, Crispus addicts. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that was rough. <laughs> Blimey. <laughs> so you said that this is not the worst movie that we've covered for you, right? For me, this is not only the worst movie we've covered. I struggle to think of a worse movie I have ever seen. How do you personally, because obviously mm. it's just like a subjective statement. I don't, you don't need to argue your point, but sure. like, how do you personally determine what you feel is the worst you've seen and what makes something like in memory of my father, which has uh, a personality of sorts, which has energy, which uh, even made me laugh once or twice. Like, <laughs> um, I mean, granted this movie laugh made me laugh. with or laugh at. Uh, Judy Greer has a good line in it. Go back to the, our episode on memory of my father sure. where I where I do that. And then also Jeremy Sisto rapping. That episode was very good. You should go back and check out all the episodes <laughs> of the movies you haven't heard of. They're still good episodes. Yeah. Um, uh, and both of them are available on Tubi. So it costs you nothing but the time that you can. Oh, don't, get don't, back. don't watch the movies. No, 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 no. <laughs> Join us in hell. Look, if you want the Judy Greer skip list, we will give it to you. But this podcast doesn't have a skip list. It's all gold. <laughs> is what I'm saying. Um, so what for you makes this like what what for you is the tolerable part? So there there is a commitment to an aesthetic that I admire. I mean, we, we talked about the uh, the energetic transitions. Um, there's also a sort of yellow-toned color palette that evokes an era. Um, and as I said before, I think when uh, a movie of this budget and this level of... I don't even know what you would say, like this level of impact... Sure. Um tries for something a little different like a specific historical era uh i do find that interesting um you find like endearing the yes the, the effort to like do a period piece on a shoestring budget yeah yeah absolutely i do um it looks like it has a shoestring budget it also yes. has like a cast of you know like a handful of people who who are all named so i don't right. actually know the budget behind this or what happened but right. but that's uh, certainly the feel of it is like it's sort of punching above its weight class in trying to be like this sort of like 70s art object yes yeah it is uh i i think uh in a in an interview with the director he said that he had the idea of this being like uh, a lost movie from the 70s that is found and unearthed in an archive somewhere. And that was his sort of vision for what the movie would be. So I, I appreciate, like, that's an interesting vision to me. Um, and, I, and I appreciate the attempt. <laughs> that that was an attempt to be nice. That ended sure, up sure, mean. sure. Um, Whereas you don't really appreciate the attempt in in memory of my father. I, I don't. I find that attempt to be much less interesting. For me, when it comes to thinking about what makes a movie bad instead of mediocre, if I find something to be uh, like actively off-putting, I 
have a have a worse reaction to that than if I find something to just be bland and poorly thought out. Sure. Uh, this movie is fairly homophobic, but it's not repellent the way that The Memory of My Father is. I've... Okay. Okay. Yeah. The 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 homophobia and the misogyny in this movie is not as um, is not as grating as in in memory of my father. Yeah. Uh, do you, off the top of your head, do you are you someone who has like a worst movie locked and loaded? Like you have a movie that you just walk around feeling like this is the worst movie I've ever seen. I feel like I'm gonna get dogpiled on if I bring this up in like a cinephile context. I I really have a lot of contempt for Oliver Stone. Sure. I do not like his movies at all. I didn't like JFK. I fucking hated The Doors. I fucking hated Nixon. Yeah. And I think with Oliver Stone, it's specifically about, it just feels like a waste. It's It's just everything he does is so big and it's these like well known actors and it's a giant fucking cast and it's like a two plus hour long movie and it's all these big swings. And like I said, usually... I am in favor of big swings. Like, mm-hmm. like I will, I will have a at least mildly positive reaction for big swing. And that is Oliver Stone. He's a yeah, big yeah. swing dude. There's just so much of it. It's. <sighs> I mean, you're talking. You're talking to the guy who like despises natural born killers. Like, I'm. I'm. Nat- I'm, I'm yeah, they, yeah. That's the other one that that is just. Oh God. So, hard um, so yeah, yeah. Through. I'm on. I'm on. I'm on I'm on board with what you're saying. I do I, I the reason I wanted to ask you this is cuz I do think it is interesting that like this is just something that different people that hits different people different ways. Sure. Cuz for me like I like Nixon is a fucking mess. Right. I find it so fascinating and I just <laughs> I like I I kind of sit there with just my jaw open and I, and right. I it's never boring. And that to me is the worst thing a movie can be. And all it's of boring. the all of the worst movies I've ever seen in my life, mm-hmm. they're not the Manos the Hands of Fates of the world. Right. They're not the uh Plan 9 from Outer Spaces of the world. Mm-hmm. They are the like gray sludge mediocre. Like right now uh, uh, screenwriters and actors both are mm-hmm. uh, are uh, on strike in Hollywood. Right. And some of the things that they are trying to push against is the Hollywood studio's eagerness to use AI in every possible way they can. Mm. Any way you can cut out people you have to pay, it's better for them. So that's... Right. so. So like that's why these unions have to like right. band together and be like you're not allowed to do that shit. Right. Um, and like to me, this is a movie that feels like it fell out of an alternate dimension where they were already making <laughs> movies with AI in 2011. I see. Where yeah. it is just like there is no humanity to mm-hmm. any of it. There's a lot of bad movies that are just like fascinating objects, and mm-hmm. you just feel the person who made its fingerprints. Like I'm an Andy Milligan fan. If you want to look up people who have been called the worst filmmakers of all time. I have seen like six Andy Milligan movies and I think five of them are fucking great. So like (laughs) that is just like for me, the, oh my God, I can't believe like the good news about being that kind of person is if I get bored with a movie nine times out of 10, I just turn it off and I never think of it again. Right. Um, when I have a podcast where I have to talk about the movie and I find myself locked in a situation where I have to endure and my being my method being, I watch things twice, one time without taking notes and mm-hmm. once doing it. Like the, the dread I felt knowing I would have to watch the key man a second time <laughs> was intense. 
And it's like, that to me is the worst movie ever made. I is think, the movie that is so boring that like right. my ADHD brain struggles to keep my eyes on the screen. Right. I think, I think also I'm giving this movie a bit of a pass in terms of vitriol because it is under 90 minutes and I kind of feel like, well, it's true. It's it's, it's under 85. I think it's, it's yeah, a short, it, it's, short movie. It feels longer. Yes. But in, it sure does. But objectively it is under 90 minutes. Like, yeah, there is definitely a, a homophobic aspect to this movie. There is a sin of omission misogyny in this yeah. movie where there's no women who have any sort of, character hey that's really? the 70s baby yes, fucking, i guess Ugh. that's that new hollywood era we all idolize <laughs> yeah no shit um but i i think i think when it comes to um a film that has a a world view that is uh something that i find sort of morally reprehensible um you know and, and it really kind of doubles down on it like i kind of feel like with in memory of my father where it's like oh there's women characters and we don't really get to see their interior lives much but also they're all gold digging sluts right uh and yeah. and a lot of the movie a lot of that movie tends seems to exist so men can yell that at them in their faces and there's yes. a catharsis from that yes so for me and uh-huh. this i think this also comes from watching like horror movies watching exploitation films uh-huh. watching like movies that are kind of fucked up morally in many ways or whatever i enjoy in and enjoy is a complicated word you don't Mm -hmm. necessarily enjoy cake and schindler's list in the same way but you can enjoy them both Mm -hmm. Uh, you can appreciate them both um like i enjoy seeing the thing that does exist in the world the disgusting worldview the the hatred the prejudice the bigotry Mm -hmm. whatever Mm -hmm. like i enjoy seeing that like stuffed it's like a it's like a it's like a tiger in a museum where okay. it can't hurt anybody right uh, especially if you go it's like a movie no one saw from 2011 like this or mm-hmm. in memory of my father another movie for you know from around the same era that right. no one saw it's like that can't hurt anyone you know <laughs> when when the uh when the like super fucked up like uh, Clint Eastwood movies like that are super right wing and make uh, millions and millions and millions of dollars. Uh-huh. Those are harder for me to watch That's because because I feel like it's like an active part of the culture. And Judy Greer's in at least one of them. So buckle up, baby. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I think that one's <laughs> particularly right wing, too. So I'm excited about that. But like for me, I enjoy the opportunity to observe. And, and, I, and we're talking about this. This is not really the key man. The key mm-hmm. man is like homophobic in the way that like the gay villain who's gay is like part of his othering yeah. is like yeah. it's it's a very banal kind of homophobia in this yeah. movie yeah. so but like i enjoy seeing a movie where i can observe that thought process in like three dimensions in the way someone mm-hmm. constructs a story to put that thought process out into the world to, to your point about when there's a repugnant worldview and it's in a movie that has a, a larger cultural impact um when we were talking about like what specific movies do you think of was like a really bad movie um the other one that came to mind for me was field of dreams oh yeah <laughs> which uh had a huge cultural impact at yeah. the time uh but um, has really not aged well because that movie is just about uh, like sucking 
the dick of the greatest generation and uh, boomers sucking their own dick. And also like... And hooray capitalism. And hooray capitalism. Also, did you realize that profit and profit are homonyms? (laughs) Like that is... That's like the tagline of Field of Dreams. Yeah, yeah. It's a a worldview that... um, that I find I find really disgusting. It's the kind of thing where, um, you know, that movie came out when I was a little kid, and there was just the sense of like, oh, isn't this like wholesome, fa- wholesome, wholesome yes, entertainment yes, yes. for the whole family? Mm. And and it really brings up like what's great about America. And then like I sit down and watch it as an adult, and I just it it just makes me feel like like nauseated to think that like like that's the kind of thing that like I was raised to believe like that's just it makes me angry at like every yeah. adult in my life and and when <laughs> I sit down with you we watch the field we watch field of dreams together at the yeah. same time it wasn't that long ago it was it like was, in the last year or two. it was a couple years ago um that's the only thing that I'm enjoying about watching Field of Dreams because I sure as hell don't like baseball or family, <laughs> but like seeing like the secret repugnant subtext under everything yeah. and like seeing the the uh, bullshit that is being sold yeah. and like seeing the sales pitch, that to me is where I go, ooh, this is kind of fun. Like... <laughs> I like playing spot the ideology, you sure, know, like sure. I think, I think there is something fun and fun and engaging about that to me. I will say, um, when I, when I think about like, like what you're saying where, where there's a film where, uh, it has an ideology that is completely abhorrent to you, but it's fun to watch. The example I think of is body of evidence. Oh yes. <laughs> she fucked that guy to death. Oh my God. God. Madonna Willem Dafoe erotic thriller. She fucks a guy to death and yeah. she's on trial because her body is the murder weapon. Yeah, yeah, where she's just this this black widow who who marries like rich men with heart problems and has really kinky sex with them until they die. And it's like it's it's pretty misogynist, but it's so ridiculous. It it just it it just takes it, it just takes slut shaming to its like absurd conclusion. Oh yeah. Um, and, and yeah, it's a nineties erotic thriller. So there is just that energy to it. That's just so much fun to indulge in. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, there's, there's nothing so about like, the movie you can take seriously. So it's like, are the performances bad body of evidence? Yes. Is the script bad? Yes. Is the direction bad? Weirdly. Yes. Madonna looks terrible. The lighting on her <laughs> makeup on her face is they don't make her look attractive. It's like she they li- did a bad job. She lives in a two story houseboat. It's yeah. very strange. <laughs> but like, so it's like, it's one of those things where it's like, yeah, they would cover this on a bad movie podcast sure. but like body of evidence i've seen twice because i have a rip-roaring good time yeah, watching it's it a, it's a roller coaster of a movie it's right. great and like that to me is like i don't know if bad is necessary like are aren't movies supposed to entertain and like am i like am, do i really consider myself so outside of like so intellectually superior to the yeah. average man that it's like no they're entertained I I'm I'm slapping my knee and liking it for a different reason and therefore it's bad but I still get to enjoy it. Like no, it's the body of evidence is a fun movie. Yeah. Yeah. Um so anyway, that is I I it's it's something that always like so bad it's good is yeah. like a phrase that I've always kind of hated and like um 
and but I but also it's just like it's totally 100% subjective everyone's going to respond yeah. to this sort of thing differently but yeah. I did want to talk about that in regards to this movie because I was watching this being like this I don't think this is the worst movie I've ever seen Clown Murders I think still takes that cake but okay. like this is one and I think I said this about the name of the uh, in memory of my father as well so <laughs> at least it's not Clown Murders <laughs> so maybe we keep track of all of the movies that I declared the worst movie I've ever seen as we, we go through Judy Greer's career we have journalization and we have is it worse than Clown Murders <laughs> <laughs> um, we do have one more performance that I think we need to talk about. Of course. So the 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 reason for the season how how is Judy Greer in this movie? She has feathered hair. But seriously, though, Judy Greer in in this film, she plays Bobby's wife, uh, who Karen. She he uh, Judy Greer as Bobby's right. wife, Karen. Uh, with her feathered hair. Not a Karen in this movie. <laughs> no, no, she she's not a Karen. She is a wife named Karen. Yeah. Um, I, I again, I have to wonder if there were scenes that were just cut out because there there is a moment in the beginning where you see her cleaning. She's vacuuming the bedroom and then she lies on the bed and sort of looks away wistfully. But we never find out what that's about. It's sort of the only moment we have of like her as a character. I have to say the the main reason that I think that there was a lot edited out of this movie is that Carol Kane is in it. She plays Bobby's secretary. She's Carol fucking Kane. Yes. They give her nothing to do. That's right. She plays... She's a secretary. She tells him he has a call. She tells him... She gives him messages. Nothing. The way I I took that was... We're making 70s-ass 70s thing. Who's someone who was in the 70s? Carol Kane... Uh, Will is like, well, we don't have a role for her. Like, I like, yeah. I think they went down a long line of like, we need a stunt casting. Like, Brian yeah. Cox is old enough, but he's not associated with the seventies. We need some sort of stunt casting somewhere. Right. And I like just the fates lined up to be Carol Kane as a secretary in two scenes. Yeah, I guess. I mean, God, I hope she was doing okay in twenty eleven. Carol Kane's a secretary in two scenes. Judy Greer is a wife in like five scenes. Yeah. Um, I I, I have no other thoughts on this performance other than I like her feathered hair. I like, honestly, like there, there is a scene where they are doing a walkthrough of the bigger, better house they want to buy. And she has some very cute reactions to the kitchen. She does this excited little squeal that I find very endearing. Um, She's also really entertained by the fact that there is like a light over the stove, which I guess is like a, a, maybe that was like new technology at the time. I just I just found it very cute, like her showing delight. But yeah, uh-huh. she she's not given really anything to do in this movie. She is a a uh, wife and a mother. Um, I mean, she has the scene at the end where uh, where Vincent is holding her at gunpoint and performs Shakespeare for her, and she's just trying to get out of it alive and says, "You're a very good actor." And and yeah, she's not given much to do at all in this movie. And we knew this was coming. And honestly, yeah. I'm surprised it took so long for us to get to Judy Greer is just somebody's wife. Because every every uh, woman in Hollywood at some point is just like, yes, you are talented. That's why we got you. That's why we got the best woman possible to just play some guy's wife. Um, they they all end up there. Very few people have ever been just some guy's wife and like done anything with it. 
and yeah. and I'm sure we're going to see more of these roles in I, the future. I think she's arguably some guy's wife in The Cat Returns. <laughs> <laughs> some cat's cat wife, you know cat fiance. We can't reiterate all of I'm telling you, this this podcast has no <laughs> skippable episodes. You go back and listen to the, the, the sheer uh, density of furry conversation we had in The Cat Returns episode is mwah. Yeah. We will get there. Yeah, um, yeah. Just looking at the other movies where she has been, um, like, uh, been like the wife of a more pivotal character. I mean, specifically uh, in memory of my father and the Descendants. Uh, in in both of those movies, she's just given something a little more interesting to do than just be a wife. Well, honestly, in the, both of those movies, she's giving something more interesting to do than the husband character. Because in one of those movies, yeah. the husband is dead, and the other one. Matthew Lillard gets like one scene compared to her like three. Yeah, yeah. He he has a really good scene where it's, it's just him and George Clooney yeah. in a confrontation. But then she gets that really meaty monologue at the, at the end. Right, exactly. Um, um, so like arguably she is the more uh, pivotal character mm-hmm. um, in that movie than the Matthew Lillard character, Brian yeah. Spears. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I, I don't remember character names and the fact that I remember character names for these movies is just going to, it's going to be the death of me. But at any rate, this is not one of those movies. Um, she is still just like, I do like the characterization of she is not like a shrew who's like, right. who's like, you used to be on top and now you're a loser. You need right. to get me a better house. Like right. whatever happened to the Bobby I married. Right. Like, Which I kind of feel like would make it more of a thriller, yeah. noir-ish kind of thing to throw in like some, you know, emasculation or, or some pressure or something. Like, right. My God. I'm not saying, I'm not saying the movie benefits from it, but it is at least like as someone who was going into this Judah Greer first, I was expecting the worst. Yeah. Um, yeah. and I do like that. I do like that. She's like, no, nah, she's just kind of chill and she's yeah. good with the kids and she reads Jaws. Yeah. I was just going to say, I bet you like the fact that she, that, that, that is her bedtime reading is Jaws. <laughs> it's the seventies. What's this book from the seventies? Jaws. That's a movie from the seventies. It was based on a book. Oh, <laughs> like this is the Kublai Khan. Uh, this is yeah. the Kublai Khan conversation over again. <laughs> this guy has not heard of Philip Roth. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, that yeah. made that did make me giggle that she's reading Jaws. Also, she does get a happy ending because then she's a real estate agent at the end. After I was Bobby curious, goes to she jail? like she like he goes in for at the beginning of the movie. He goes in for a kiss, and she's like, "Oh, I'm running late" or whatever. Um, was she always a real estate agent? No, I I we don't. I mean, we get like so little yeah, information about her as a person. I, I don't know. I'm I, asking. Th- I think I think she's bringing the kids to school. I I think she's a stay at home mom. Okay. Um, but then he goes to jail and, and then she becomes a real estate agent and looks like she's pretty happy doing it. It's, yeah. It's, it's a, it's, you know what? It's just one of those things. Sometimes you talk for an hour about a movie and you talk for four minutes about Judy Greer's role yeah, in it. That is, true. that is the, uh, the millstone we carried yeah. during this podcast. Yeah. That, that is, that is. That is the boulder we we're rolling up that hill. I was about to make a Prometheus <laughs> reference. I'm very glad you got you there You were about first. to make a Sisyphus reference. God. can move on then to our uh, palate cleanser of the other segment where we each come up with a question or a challenge or a segment to share. Usually I, I bring a, a, a question 
um, you know, something that we both answer. Uh, but this time, I am instead uh, bringing a game. Uh, and uh, Patrick, you are going to be the contestant. Hey! I am going to be the game show host. Hey! Welcome to Greer or Greer! This is the game show where I am going to read a statement about a Greer, and you have to guess if the statement is about Judy Greer, Pam Greer, both or neither. Wow, this is exciting. I did not know the rules of the game before. <laughs> Are you feeling up to the task? I am. Do I get a prize? Um... You get the knowledge of a job well done. That is the best prize. So, <laughs> yes, I am ready. Okay, great. Um, we're going to start off with, with, a, with, a, with an easy one just to get you warmed up. This Greer is the first black woman to appear on the cover of Ms. Magazine in August 1975. Why, that's Pam Greer. You are correct. All right, moving on, moving on. This Greer celebrates her birthday today, July 20th. Okay, so I follow a bunch of cult film people on Instagram, and I feel like I would have seen something about Pam Greer. Um, I'm going to go with Judy Greer. It is Judy Greer's hey! birthday. You were correct. Happy birthday, Judy Greer. Um, but, uh, for the record, are, is, is neither an answer to any of these questions? Or is it only yes, one, two, it, or both? Yeah, it's 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 Pam, it's Judy Greer, Pam Greer, both Greers or neither. Oh wow! Greers. So that could have that would have been a really diabolical that neither answer. Been, right that would have right. been, but, right, but cool. I mean, it's Judy Greer's birthday. I, I, I could never be so mean to you on, on Judy Greer's birthday. Why? It's the reason for the season. It is. It is. I am. Uh, um, yeah. All right. All right. Um, okay. Next up, this Greer is a global ambassador for International Medical Corps. That is Pam Greer. That you are incorrect. That is Judy Greer. No. Oh. Okay. Wah, okay. Wah. Okay. Moving on, but you're you're still in the running. You're still Pam doing Greer, great. Pam Greer wouldn't settle. She'd be like <laughs> ambassador to France. <laughs> <laughs> this Greer is five foot eight inches tall. Both? You are correct. Hey. Judy Greer and Pam Greer are both very tall ladies. Yeah. All right. All right. Here we go. This Greer's parents got married after her mother quit being a nun. That's Judy Greer. That is Judy Greer. It'd be wild if it was both, but I'm pretty sure it's just Judy Greer. <laughs> to my knowledge, it was just Judy Greer. That's you a are correct. Very wild story. You are doing really good here. You only have one wrong so far, and wow. we're halfway through. Excellent. All right. This Greer spent part of her childhood living on a beet farm. Living on a beet farm. Oh, goodness. Um, I think that's Judy Greer. No, you're incorrect. That was Pam Greer. Ah. Her her family owned a beet farm in Colorado, and she lived there for part of her childhood. Wow. <laughs> this Greer was a recurring cast member on season nine of Smallville. Oh, well, that's Pam Greer. That is Pam Greer. Okay. I've never seen Smallville, so it seemed like a hard question to me. I, I just, I have, you know, uh, maybe understandably spent a lot of time on Judy Greer's IMDb page, and I feel like I would have noticed. Ah, that's true. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> that's, that is fair. Um, okay, we've got two more questions to go. You're doing great. I'm feeling good. This this job well done is really going to, is going to feel <laughs> awesome, I think. <laughs> okay. This Greer delivered her daughter via cesarean section. Well, that's Pam Greer. That's neither. Oh. Oh, that is tricky. That neither. 
That, that, that rascally neither. I know that, that Judy Greer has not given birth to any children. No, she has She has, has not. adopted children. Yeah, she, she, well, she has stepchildren. Stepchildren, um, my mistake, And yeah. uh, Pam Greer does, also has not given birth to any children. Oh. Um, so, yes, they are both... Uh, you know what? That that is interesting. That if you that you felt confident saying neither, it must be because Pam Greer doesn't have children. Because I don't know why they would say either way. Oh, I I don't know. You, you read all sorts of crazy things. All right, all right, all right. Um, okay. That job well done is feeling a little less special now, but that's, that's right. okay. I can that's pull okay. it out. We are down to our final question, the final round of Greer or Greer. This Greer has not not done voice acting for a video game that's judy greer correct you are correct isn't that strange yeah yeah and pam greer has done a grand theft auto game yes and some other thing i i, I remember there was like either a, it was the era of grand theft auto that pam greer was in one of those that's, yeah that's that's the influences they're pulling from and whatnot in fact grand theft auto is a late 90s pre oceans 11 example of like the swanky 70s kind of uh, uh, stylizations and visuals and stuff. Oh, okay. That first Grand Theft Auto game, they were trying to do that or whatever. Whatever. Uh, <laughs> video game dork talk. I'm just glad that you didn't throw in a, a curveball at the end and do a Rosie Greer and and really throw my whole game off. I would never. Okay. This, this is a This is an above board uh, game show. That's excellent. Well, congratulations, Patrick. Oh, thank you. We're shaking hands right now. <laughs> you can't fully shake hands no matter how hard you try. <laughs> you, you. That was a job well done. Thank you very Good much. That was a you, lot of fun. Patrick. Good. I'm glad you enjoyed it because I... Uh, spent a little too much time doing that research i had a i had a question yes do you think growing up on a beet farm is why pam greer was so good at laying out all those beatings a hundred percent okay i think you're absolutely correct yeah there. well the more you learn of you know uh knowledge is a lifelong journey Education is a lifelong journey. I also learned a lot of interesting things about Pam Greer, but there was no way that like that Judy Greer would have done these things, like uh, like dated Kareem Abdul Jabbar, and then he he propo- <laughs> he proposed to her, but said that he would only marry her if she converted to Islam. So she said no. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> Pam man. Greer also has two honorary PhDs. So interesting lady. You know what? Now that I'm thinking about Pam Greer, that's a good transition to my other segment. Okay. Because maybe there's some Pam Greer movies where you could slot Judy Greer in. Because my other segment is called K. Judy's Super Sounds of the 70s. Now, (laughs) what we are doing is we are taking movies from the 70s that Uh do exist. Uh And we are replacing one of the actors with Judy Greer. Judy Greer at any point in her career. So if you wanted to put Jawbreaker's Judy Greer in a role, you want to put contemporary Judy Greer in a role. Mm-hmm. That all works out. But so seeing Judy Greer in this movie that takes place in the 70s made me think of a statement I made uh, a couple episodes ago um, where we were talking about uh, adaptations of nonfiction books that you mm-hmm. can put Judy Greer into. Mm-hmm. And I said I was struggling picturing her being in the 20th century. I always just think of Judy Greer as a 20th first century woman. Right. I don't like I just think of her in the internet as coexisting. Um and so I w- it was a I thought it would be a fun exercise to recast a movie from the 70s with Judy Greer in it. Would you like to go first? It it pains me a little bit to say this because I I 
do have a very deep fondness for the actress who originated this role. Mm-hmm. Um, but if if there is some terrible parallel universe out there where Madeline Kahn does not exist, Ooh. I would want to see Judy Greer as Trixie in Paper Moon. I love that. <laughs> I love that Peter Bogdanovich's Paper Moon. Yeah, yeah. Um, that you you asked me that question, and that was the first thing that I thought of. That's so good. Um, I I think especially because um, seeing Judy Greer both on stage in Another Marriage, and then also pretty recently in Addicted to Fresno, where she plays these characters who are like survivors and they're very and they're very scrappy and they just do what they need to do describe Trixie for the audience sure so so Paper Moon for the one person listening who doesn't know um takes place during the Great Depression and it is about uh grifters it is about these like small time con artists doing what they need to do to survive in like these like small struggling farm towns during the great depression. Um, it's a beautiful movie about a relationship between a man and a child, um, who are both kind of, you know, struggling to survive in their own ways. Um, and, uh, about halfway through the movie, Ryan O'Neill's character, uh, who's, he's like the main character meets a, woman named Trixie Delight who's an exotic dancer at a carnival and she joins their merry band because um he's banging her and she and he's um and he's he's kind of made a lot of money with his um with his bible salesman scam so um so he can be her sugar daddy basically that's that's what it is so so Trixie is a survivor she's not a mean person um you just get the sense that this is a woman who um, who's gotten by on her looks. Um, maybe we're reaching the end of those days. Um, and she was probably doing pretty good before the Great Depression hit because like she has a, she's a maid who she brings around with her. And she's just uh, accustomed to a certain level of living that she really doesn't want to let go of. And she's kind of willing to do whatever she needs to do. There's this scene that I think about and it fucking breaks my heart when I think about it where... Um, where where Tatum O'Neill's character is is so pissed off that her father figure this like the one adult in her life um who she's started to really care about is now turning all of his attention to this adult woman and uh and they're gonna they're gonna keep driving to the next town and she is just refusing to get into the car and she's just sitting on a hill and just sulking and Trixie comes up the hill and just kind of talks to her um and is just kind of saying like look we're all just trying to survive here and this is how I survive and like I'm not trying to hurt you I'm just taking care of myself and the last line of the monologue is like just let Trixie and her big tits sit up front and it's just like it's it's just there's this weariness to it where it's just like she's telling this this little girl something something about how the world works and it's like she doesn't want to say it, but she also doesn't want to lie to her. And this is a movie where people are just like constantly lying to other people. And it's just this this moment of like really like naked honesty and and um, like really like uh, just saying what's going on and not letting each other guess and not not trying to like. I don't know. It's just something about that that just kind of like, like like the weariness of everything that, that's going on just falls on that one line and 
Madeline Kahn does an amazing job. And she's also funny. I mean, of course she's fucking funny. She's Madeline Kahn. Um, you know, where there's like other scenes where it's just, you know, you know, she's she's gonna sleep with another guy and uh Tatum O'Neill is like trying to pull a con to like to like get Ryan O'Neill to dump her. Um, and it's it's very funny and charming. And I mean, I can just see Judy Greer pulling off both of those levels of energy, the sort of like flighty ultra femininity that Madeline Kahn also did so well. I feel like like vocally they're both very similar. They yes. have that sort of like breathiness and I that think that's right. like flutteriness yeah. to, to how they speak. Um, but then also kind of kind of having that like that like scrappiness and that like kind of hard understanding of like this is what I have to do to get through my day and fuck it, I'm gonna do it and you're not gonna stop me. Yeah. Um so yeah, I, if I had to drop her into a role in a movie, that's what it would be. For which, which is interesting because you're not dropping her into the 70s, you're dropping her into the 30s. Right. So there's another... So for me, uh, this is a game I came up with the idea, but I didn't necessarily have an answer. Uh-huh. And then when I started doing research, like just sort of browsing through 70s movies, uh-huh. it's the thing we already talked about. Wait, let me guess. You want her to play the shark in Jaws? Yeah, yeah. Because she read the book, so she knows yeah. the internal... Yeah. You know, she knows the internal life. Um we already talked about the seventies is like, Oh yeah, that's, that's the era when like the men get sort of free reign to yeah. sort of like expose their ids on screen. And it turns out that these men did not have very warm things to say about women no. or like, or like were particularly concerned with writing interesting, complicated roles for them. Right. And so you get a lot of concerned girlfriends. You get a lot of like right. teenage runaways who, yeah. who like complicate a man's life by their sexuality. Like you get a lot of like yeah. bullshit like that. Yeah. And so I was just sort of like, Oh God, not only do I have trouble like placing Judy Greer in the seventies, I'm having trouble finding a fucking woman, (laughs) you know? And I was like, and, but of course, Carol Kane's in this movie. She is. And one of her great performances is in 1973, the last detail, uh, the Hal Ashby movie. Um, and but like this is, this is the problem. I thought you were going to say Mafu cage, but go on. Yeah. Mafu. (laughs) Look, (laughs) fuck. That would be terrible, Miss Cat. Judy Greer is absolutely not Carol Kane in Mafu Cage. Okay. She, uh, there's just, that doesn't work. But, um, but like, let me, this is a, this was a perfect demonstration of my issue. Uh Uh-huh. Last detail, two Navy men, they're tasked with taking this young kid. He's like 16. He stole $17 out of a cash register. He's going to a a military prison for six years because of it. Mm -hmm. They realize they basically get shore leave, uh, for as long as it takes for them to get him there. And along the way, they start to feel bad for him. And they're like, let's let him live a little before he goes to prison. Mm-hmm. Eventually, they realize they are all kind of in prison because they don't have free reign over what they choose to do. They don't have money. They don't have... They don't get to choose what their assignments are. They're in the military. Right. And you get this like complex interiority about all these characters who are very tough and very macho and very foul mouthed. You know, it's Jack Nicholson, you know, and it's but like you start peeling away and you see the vulnerability underneath over over the course of this really great movie. Um, And then Carol Kane shows up as young whore. (laughs) That's 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 how she's credited (laughs) in the movie. Young whore. Wow. So this is this, this is the 70s. She's great. She they take him to they they take him to a, a house of uh, ill repute. Mm-hmm. Um, she is the sex worker there. Uh, he uh, prematurely ejaculates immediately. Um, they she goes all right. Well, 
let him go again. And instead of having sex at all, they just sort of sit in bed and talking. And she's just sort of like, oh my God, this kid is like just so clueless. And she sort of takes pity on him and like sort of mothers him a little bit in bed. Mm -hmm. And that's that's his experience at, at this whorehouse or whatever. And it's like this really great role where it's like you get the world weariness and but it's also just like I don't I don't want like oh who should Judy Greer be in the 70s young whore like no I don't <laughs> so then I was like thinking like all right well I tried to go for something a little more dramatic what's a comedy I can do well you know a, a movie that's that's uh speaking of movies that are kind of uh bad in a few objective ways and nonetheless I love like Diamonds Are Forever is a James Bond movie that is extremely silly and extremely sexist uh -huh. but it's also got a little bit of a screwball thing where the Bond girl Tiffany Case is kind of accompanying him and I'm like I would like to see Judy Greer as a Bond girl I think that'd be fun that could be interesting I, yeah. I like she, as like a slightly daffy like she's a jewel thief so she's not just like a total innocent but uh -huh. also she is not like military trained killer and she and like whenever someone hands her a gun she doesn't know what to do with them and stuff and so like there's this comedic role to the the role of tiffany case that i think judy greer could do good but then again i was like oh tiffany case yeah, and tiffany she's case. a jewel thief okay yeah, i got yeah. it i got it i'm on board now okay right there. okay okay i'm with you yeah um and then I, but then i was like what am i doing what i'm doing is i'm backdooring like what's your comedy I'll tell you what a comedy is. Sleeper is a comedy. She should be Diane Keaton in Sleeper. Diane okay. Keaton plays a yuppie in the future uh -huh. who is totally self-absorbed. Um, and Woody Allen sneaks onto her property uh, disguised as a robot. Mm -hmm. uh, she calls the cops on him. He goes and has those little adventures away from her. Later on, there's like a rebel cell who are against the tyrannical uh, sort of uh, Nazi-coded government. Uh-huh. Um, and she is sort of this like radicalized yuppie who is like part of this military cell, but she's like in love with the military leader and he wants her to be in love with her. Uh -huh. Diane Keaton's so fucking funny. Judy Greer like is just kind of funny in, in the in the same way. Yeah, yeah. She does have a real Diane Keaton energy about her. Yeah. So, so ultimately I think and like and like a lot of those earlier Woody Allen movies, like I think I think Annie Hall is a character that I wouldn't cast Judy Greer as, but a lot of those earlier Woody Allen movies have an energy that I think Judy Greer can hit really well. I mm -hmm. think I think there is something to arrested like there's something of early Woody Allen in the DNA of arrested development or something like that. Yeah, I can see that. Um and uh so I was just like, Yeah, Sleeper is the one. You could also put her in love and death, you know, but like Sleeper for me is that's the mm -hmm. the, the role for Judy Greer in the seventies. Like that yeah yeah um but it was it was a struggle getting there because it's just like god <laughs> if you if it's not a robert altman movie then it's usually slim pickets like yeah. there's some uh, there's some other people who, who were you know there's there there are plenty of interesting movies uh made by women and about mm -hmm. women in the 70s but like they're just not top of mind when you think of the decade and yeah the movies that are, are top of mind it's like who are the interesting women in serpico <laughs> it's like uh i don't know so i guess we have come to our last segment which is judalization the movie that we focused on uh for this episode how well does it utilize judy greer in her many skills and talents uh so since last episode we we discussed uh another marriage which is a stage play at steppenwolf uh starring judy greer we did not include that in utilization as it is not a movie um but i will give a quick rundown of the current list which you can find on my letterboxd at panda bear shape our current utilization ranking best to worst is as follows addicted to fresno good boy the wedding planner Adaptation. Now at five, we have The Descendants, then Lolly Love, What Planet Are You From, 
Pottersville, The Cat Returns, and at the bottom, number 10, we have In Memory of My Father. Uh, so, Patrick, what are your thoughts on where The Key Man uh, fits on our current list? So, I think The Key Man is the worst movie we have covered. I think as far as utilization, um, I would put it above The Cat Returns and below Pottersville. Because I think both The Cat Returns and In Memory of My Father are sort of defined by miscasting like actively like mm-hmm. this is not she is not the right person for this role right yeah yeah because e- even though as we said before in memory of my father gives her more to do in the role uh she she doesn't really fit the role that well she's this sort of gold digger type character and it and it doesn't really work with uh her stage presence right um you know i i will i will agree with you i think uh I think that the role of Karen in The Key Man is a pretty bland role that any pretty actress could play. And, and you know, Judy Greer does what she can with it, as she always does. You know, she really has a um, an admirable work ethic. Um, she doesn't phone it in. Um but yeah, there, there's not there's not much to it. There's no there's no spice. There's no there's nothing interesting. Uh, even even compared to to Pottersville, yes. where where she does at least get a moment or two of archness. She does get a moment or two of moving the plot along. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, certainly not as miscast as the Cat Returns or in memory of my father. So I agree with you. Um, the key man will uh, now be. The new number nine on our list of jutilization. Typing it out right now. Yes. This is always my favorite part of the episode. There we go. It's on there officially. Look, if there if there's one thing I've learned in acting, it is that if you really do something, it's more interesting. And certainly that comes across in podcasting where you cannot hear me tapping on my smartphone. Do you want to shake hands again like we did at the end yes. of the game show? This is adding so much to the podcast. I'm so glad we did this again. Okay, excellent. Yeah, so that was our conversation on The Key Man. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Our next episode is going to be on the 2015 road trip movie Grandma. Good, good movie. Yeah, yeah, I'm looking looking forward to it. Lily Tomlin, um, National Treasure. Yeah. Um, It should be a a good time. Uh, Please join us next time for Grandma. Um, You can... Follow us on Mastodon at 96Greers at laserdisc.party. You can email us at 96Greers at proton.me. You can follow me on Letterboxd at Panda Bear Shape, uh, where you can also find the updated uh, list of judilization rankings and hear my hot takes on movies that we don't discuss on this podcast. Until next time, I'm Reg. And I'm Patrick. And, and say, say goodbye, goodbye to thee. I just knew we were going to fade out. (laughs) (laughs) So I wanted to like, I wanted to fade out the V.